0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this thesis chat with Chris Swank. I'm very glad to have each one of you here. Happy to see you and enjoy some discussion back and forth about Chris's research. So, before we start, I'll just uh, make a couple of announcements and some introductions. So, I'm Serena Higgins. I'm the Chair of the Language and Literature Department here at Signum and the thesis program coordinator and Chris will introduce herself momentarily. So by way of announcements as you all probably know we're in the midst of the fall fundraiser for Signum which means we have all kinds of exciting events going on. So make sure that you go to signumuniversity.org fund events and you can see everything that's coming up. I want to mention especially a seminar that we're just starting. We're doing these sort of mini classes on important new release publications by Tolkien. There have been several books published, sort of one each over the last four years or so, of new um, new works by Tolkien, well, old works by Tolkien, newly published. And so we're starting with a seminar on A Secret Vice. Uh, Andy Higgins and Demetra Fini recently edited that, published it with some great scholarly materials in that, so you don't want to miss that upcoming seminar. So check that, signumuniversity.org, fund, events, to get all the details on that and all the other events that are coming up. And just a sneak preview, I'm not sure if you've heard anything about this one yet. You know, last year we had the really great creative writing contest, the flash fiction contest that every week for six weeks We had a different theme with flash fiction, and you all wrote brilliant stuff. Well, we are going to have a creative writing event in November, so announcements about that will be coming up shortly, so get ready. It'll be quite different from last year. It'll tap into some other creative writing abilities we have in our ranks, so stay tuned for that. All right, well then, I'd like to welcome Chris Swank. Chris is the first member of our alumni. We have hired back to be a faculty member, so Congratulations on that, Chris. She's been serving as a preceptor now. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your day job, maybe where you live, what else you've studied, those sorts of things.
1: Well, I am a library director at Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, in my day job. And I also do some teaching. They have let me teach a Tolkien class here on campus this semester because of my work at at Signum, and I have uh, very enthusiastic students I can't get to leave the classroom when class time is over, so I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, I started with Signum University the very first semester that it was open in the fall of 2011 and completed my master's requirements uh, sometime in 2014, sometime in the fall. That's about it about me.
0: Okay, great. Well, so you're gonna talk to us about your thesis, The Irish Otherworld Voyage of Roverandom. So I thought it would make sense for you to start by telling us about Roverandom, in case there's anybody here who has not read that Tolkien work. So if you want to give us a little bit of plot synopsis and put it in context when and where he wrote it and the occasion, that sort of thing, that would be great. Absolutely. It started
1: as a story that he told his children when he had three young sons. They were on vacation at the seaside Uh, resort of filey and michael lost his toy dog on the beach and was just bereft it was his favorite toy so tolkien uh, started telling a story and as he always did the story grew in the telling and he retold it um, probably in 1927 on another vacation and then he started doing some illustrations for the story and maybe christmas 1927 he began to write out the entire story after the hobbit was very successful he showed it to his publishers Uh, George Allen and Unwin, Mm -hmm. to see if maybe they wanted to publish that, but they didn't. They wanted more hobbits, and he put it in a drawer where it remained for about 70 years. And after he uh, passed away and Christopher was going through his papers, that was one of the um, completed manuscripts, and it was published eventually in 1998. Skull and Hammond, Christina Skull and Wayne G. Hammond, were the editors and wrote um, a fantastic seminal introduction. If you have a copy of Roverandom, you have a copy of their essay on the the background of Roverandom and the um, different influences and
0: sources that Tolkien used. Okay, great. And uh so what, oh, and so what happens, synopsis. Yes. Right. So what happens in this story with this, do- this lost dog?
1: So it's a story of a, a little dog who is playing in his front yard and he bites a, a, a man who's passing by who stole his ball, turns out to be a wizard who does not like being bitten, and um, uh, turns him into a little toy dog and sends him off on a series of adventures. And he goes to the moon and he goes under the deep blue sea. And uh, he learns some things about himself and others and eventually he comes up.
0: Very good. So I can see then how it's a voyage and how that ties in, but an Irish otherworld voyage. So there's a particular genre of literature you're gonna talk to us about now, right? You're gonna give us the term and tell us what this Irish otherworld voyage is.
1: Yes, so uh, when I started my thesis, I knew that I wanted to do Roverandom. I tend to be drawn to Tolkien's early works and his works for children, especially, and no one had really worked on Roverandom since Skull & Hammond put out the edition in 1998. There had been no scholarly papers and uh, as as uh, Dr. Flieger and I were looking at this um, we realized though there's a sea voyage and uh, there's a lot of islands and perhaps uh, there's some resonances to this Irish uh, style um, of of uh, storytelling that goes back to the Middle Ages called the Im- Imram, Is singular Imrama is the plural and there are several different kinds of uh, definitions. Basically, it's uh, a sea voyage tale in which a hero wanders about from island to island in the other world. He sees wonders and he returns home. But it's also a Christian story of redemption. Uh, Usually it starts off with some sort of offense or crime, and then the journey is about um, reconciliation and redemption. So it's very Christian oriented. Um, And you guys can see some various definitions on the screen and it's basically the one that is the most succinct I like the best is it's the journey of the soul through life Yeah. Um, Unlike a quest tale in which uh, we're very familiar Luke Skywalker um, Frodo Baggins where someone goes on a destination to do a specific task or get a specific uh, magical item, the main point of the Imrama is going to these different islands, and they seem very unconnected, and to have strange wonders and marvels on them, but they're actually little mini-lessons for the protagonist to learn uh, on his path to to reconciliation and redemption. Mm -hmm. And we realized that was the journey that Rover was going on.
0: Well, that's magnificent, and I can see all kinds of other parallels and how this is taken up in many other works of literature, including some other inklings, um, and I think maybe that's where you're going next. I think you have a list of either some of the original ones or some later adaptations.
1: We uh, These are the original, uh, the surviving Imrama that we have okay. uh, left. There's very few. Um, the first four one, two, three, four on the list are definitely Christian influenced Imrama, The Voyage of Bran sometimes is in the group and sometimes is in a a more pagan group called Ektre, but they're basically other world voyages where somebody with his friends goes across the sea, goes to lots of islands, has adventures and comes home. Mm. And uh, so I had to go read all of these because I wasn't familiar with them at the beginning. That was a major group of uh, my research items. Of course, they're all in medieval Irish, and I don't read medieval Irish, so I had to read them in translation.
0: Right. All right. Well, um, everybody, I was just talking to Chris before we started, and I mentioned that I'm taking a class on Yates this semester, too. And so here's another one. This is uh, Lady Gregory, who was Yeats's patron, friend, and collaborator, they wrote plays together, and she translated two big volumes of early Irish mythology. So she has one as well, the Call of Oisin, which is fascinating because it's a it's a pre-Christian one, and yet it very quickly gets taken up by Christian writers as well. And then eventually Oisin meets Saint Patrick and tells him his stories of going to this pagan other world. So you have this really fascinating meeting both. The characters and the geographies are pagan Christian, and they're meeting up as well. So maybe we can come back to that later. Uh, So what do all these stories have in common then, Chris? What would you say makes an Imrama? Does it have uh, certain structural elements? There are
1: certain structural elements, and uh, it's a a framework narrative, starts and ends in the mundane world, and then the bulk of the narrative is in the other world. Uh, you usually pass through some kind of mist barrier or some kind of storm propels you off into the sea, and you visit a series of different islands, um, and then you go back to the mundane world at the end. The uh, There's a circular kind of uh, voyage that the protagonist takes. It usually starts off with some kind of crime or offense, hmm. um, a murder, uh, uh, an impiety, uh, some kind of... Uh, act that's offensive and the protagonist is sent into exile or goes off in a boat to find to become closer to God. Passes through this barrier of mist and goes into the other world and the voyage is uh, primarily to a a series of islands and it can be anywhere from two to thirty islands in the surviving texts that we have. There's uh, some sort of reconciliation and then a return to the mundane world. Uh, The person that starts the uh, process is usually some kind of supernatural um, figure that sends the protagonist off, an angel, a saint. There's even a medieval Irish, imram, the uh, Voyage of Melduin, that he is sent off by a wizard, which probably is what attracted Tolkien to that idea. Uh, Most of them take friends with them, uh, Roverandum meet some along the way but they usually have companions that go with them and then they go through a bunch of instructive little mini lessons to on these different islands and they have a series of supernatural guides that help them along the way and then the whole voyage is is moving from that crime to a place of of redemption Mm -hmm. it's really a voyage of the individual uh, even though there are companions along along with that and as we looked at this structure that the uh scholars who study the, Irish, the, the medieval Irish texts came up with, we realized that Roverandum met every single one of these um, criteria and, and was actually structured in this way. So that doesn't not appear, I'm not inside Tolkien's head, I can't say for 100% certain, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that he did this on purpose and, and yeah. was writing in, in *Imram* on purpose.
0: Yeah, and he writes other ones as well, in other parts of his literature, so that seems really likely. Um, Is the crime always or usually committed by the main character then, the Bran or Brendan or O'Sheen figure?
1: It's not always. In The Voyage of Snedgus and Macriaga, again, I apologize to anyone who actually speaks uh, Irish for my awful pronunciation, Uh, they are two monks who are following some other folks who killed a king and were set adrift, and they decide to follow them in a boat. So it's not always the the main character. Uh, Brendan, in some versions, burns a Book of Wonder and is sent off to atone for burning this holy book. And in other versions, he just wants to go find the Land of Promise of the Saints, and he goes into a self-exile. So there's not yeah. any sort of crime in, in that. Uh, sometimes yeah, and- a beautiful woman
0: lures mm-hmm. the protagonist away. Yeah, That's what happens in Mm Oshin. In one of the Brendan versions, doesn't someone come with a golden bough plucked from a magical tree on one of the islands? I think it's a golden bough with silver bells, sort of a call to the other world. Yes,
1: Yes, he wants to go there.
0: Yeah, and isn't there also a sense sometimes that it is poetry that calls them as well? Sometimes the person who's luring, whether it's the beautiful woman, or the magician, the wizard, or the fairy, um, summons them with, with poetry and there's one version where the person who's calling says I will give you, and I can't remember the number, I can't remember if it's 24 or 48, but she says I will give you 24 stanzas, which I think is a cute way of saying here's this present, it's 24 quatrains, but then in the version that we have it's short, it doesn't have all right. of them. Right. Um, and then and then when he meets this divine supernatural guide partway across on the water, that person also says, I will give you 24 stanzas. And again, it's short. So whether we're missing them or whether that's just kind of a, a statement. You know, and they didn't mean the number literally. I'm not sure. But there's also some sense that poetry itself is a lure to another uh, world.
1: Absolutely. And some of the scholars break these definitively into the pagan and Christian uh, groups. And um, the pagan group, which is Oisin and Bran and some others, um, is usually a, a fairy, a fairy queen, uh, yeah. a, some kind of fairy lures the protagonist uh, away their love with the mortal man and want him to come live with her, and yeah. they bring a magic apple or a magic branch or poetry or some kind of lure to get them to come across the sea. In the Christian uh, ones, which were the first four on my list in the previous slide, and we'll have these slides available if anybody needs to look at those later. Um, it, it is a, a crime, so I think that the impetus between the pagan and the Christian is very different.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, well, so you mentioned the supernatural guides, so why don't we take a look at those and see who their guides are and whether those are different in pagan, Christian, and in Tolkien's, or who gets what kinds of guides?
1: Absolutely. So uh, looking at the best known of these, which is the voyage of Brendan, who was an Irish abbot, uh, he has various guides that help him on his journey to about 12 different islands. He has a bird, which he calls a messenger from God, and he arrives at a deserted mansion, but there's a dog that leads him there, and there's some food and provisions for them in this deserted mansion. He's also given help by some old kind of uh, saintly men, the abbot of St. Albi and Paul the Hermit. And then he and his group are also ferried part of the way across the ocean to the land of promise of the saints by a giant whale, uh, Yaskonius. So these are all very magical figures. And uh, if you would look at who helped Roverandom on his journey, he's helped by a seagull named Mew. He's helped by a couple dogs, one on the moon and a dog, and the moon dog leads him back to the white tower where dinner is waiting for them every night. He's helped by some magicians, Samathos, the sand sorcerer, or Pssamathos, the sand sorcerer, um, and the man in the moon, who are both wizards, and a giant whale named Uin, who also appears in Tolkien's Lost Tales. So if you really examine the categories that these two groups of supernatural beings um, fall into, you can see that there's a one-for-one correlation between The Voyage of Brendan and yeah. Roverandom. You have bird helpers, dog helpers, wise elders, and a giant fish. And these also appear in a lot of the lost tales that Tolkien was working on in the teens and 20s.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. That's such a direct correspondence. <laughs> yeah, that's not an accident. That's um, when we knew
1: we were on the right track with this, was yeah, when we the, did this was... correspondence.
0: Carita says that she loves that name for a seagull, calling it Mew. Yes, mm-hmm. the meowing seagull. It's really adorable. Um, so, I've been wondering all along about the islands that they visit, because the idea of a blessed island or a magical island in the West or um, a kind of an Avalon like place is really important in other kinds of stories as well. But, what, mm-hmm. what islands do they visit? In these. Well, I just happened to have a slide ready for that as well.
1: So there are five islands, and we have to use the term a little bit loosely and think of it more as insular uh, environments. Uh, the first that uh, we visit, Mew takes Rover, and he's been turned into a little tiny toy dog at this point by um, Artaxerxes, the first wizard. And he rides on Mew the seagull to Mew's bird cliffs. And uh, then he's taken to an Isle of Lost Dogs, where all the lost dogs in the world can go live and eat um, from bone trees that drop ripe meat bones when they're ripe, uh, and the dogs just stand under the trees and get to eat, so it's kind of a paradise for dogs, lost dogs. And then they go to the moon, and I wondered, does the moon actually qualify as an island? Well, it's an insular environment, it's kind of floating in the sea of the heavens, but did Tolkien think of it as an island and in fact in his Lost Tales, he describes the moon as an island of pure glass and as the Argent Isle. And over and over again he uses this island imagery to talk about uh, the moon. So we know that he thought of the moon as one of the islands. Then they visit the deep blue sea, which is also um, an an island insular environment because it's under under the ocean. And then they see Elvenholm in the distance um, in Roverandum. And once again, we found a one-for-one correspondence uh, between the uh, Roverandum islands and some standard islands that you can find repeatedly in multiple of the Imrama. Mm-hmm. So There usually is a paradise of birds, an island with a, a monastery where food is miraculously delivered every day, just like... The meat bones, when they're ripe, drop from the tree in Rovarandam. In the Imrama uh, bread sort of just appears every day. There's an island with holy hermits. There's usually an undersea country, and then the land of promise, or the land of youth, or
0: the land of wonderful things in the Irish. Wow, okay, this is so exciting. I have so many (laughs) questions I want to ask, but all of you who are listening too, feel free to send in your questions, your thoughts, your comparisons. Um, Wow, which way to go next, then? Uh, So, is this part of the Middle-earth legendarium, then?
1: Isn't everything that he ever wrote, actually, get dragged in to
0: the Middle-earth legendarium? It seems like it does, yes. So, so show us us how. Show us how he's doing that. (laughs) Uh,
1: It certainly is part of the legendarium as it existed in the middle 1920s, which was the Lost Tales. The world is flat and Roverandum's world is flat. Uh, as Rover and Mew are flying to the moon, they can see the water just falling off the edge of the earth because the earth is flat. Roverandum is set during a temp- contemporary time. Uh, there are automobiles, there are modern houses, uh, and yet it's on a world that's flat and the water falls off the edge. So that's definitely the earth, not as we know it, but as, as Tolkien was writing it during the Lost Tales. There's Home. Um, there are... Uwen, Uin, the whale, is in the Lost Tales. He is the giant fish that uh, pulls um, Tol Eressia part of the way across the ocean in the early legendarium. And so that same whale appears in the Lost Tales and in Roverandum. Uh, I don't know if he explicitly meant it to be a continuation of the Lost Tales into a contemporary time period, or if he just... Um, had these motifs already in his mind and just started reusing them,
0: right? Because it doesn't exactly match up. We've got some serious consistency problems if we try to make it. If we try to force it into the timeline, right? Like if we try to say this is a post. Um, or I guess this is a fourth age story. If we try to because the, the world is already yeah, rounded by yes, then. The world yeah. has already been rounded by then. But in other ways, it kind of fits, that even in our own time, or in the 1920s, that we still get echoes of Elven Home and that these, mm-hmm. these journeys are still possible. So there's thematic consistency, even though we have those, those errors, those problems with the geography that doesn't match up, yes. Um, Tom popped in with some good philology, that a mu is a type of gull and that samathos means sandy in ancient Greek, so very good. I'm sure Tolkien had those in mind. Uh, And Carita says Tolkien never seems to waste a good name or image. Right, and he does keep reusing these, so it's one thing to say he keeps reusing a good idea, a good name, a good image, but you're saying a little bit more, aren't you, Chris, that he's trying to weave all these stories into his tapestry, right? Yes, at the
1: time that he was excuse me, at the time that he was writing Roverandum or a little later, he worked on his Fall of Arthur. He never finished it, but he has some notes that he left um, that he was going to finish it in a certain way, and Lancelot and Arthur were going to sail off um, Mm -hmm. to the west of the world. Uh, Arthur was going to be taken to the west of the world, and, and Lancelot was going to follow him. And the geography that is described in that fragment of note is exactly the geography of Roverandum. So you have The Lost Tales, you have Roverandum, you have The Fall of Arthur. Three very different conceptions, but he weaves them all together with the same geography. and It's like there's a place where all these tales are real.
0: And uh, Beowulf. He weaves Beowulf Beowulf in, as well, in the notes that he has on King Sheeve. and we can access to his other King Sheeve poems, because, uh, I don't know if you all remember, that at the beginning of Beowulf, one of the important ancestral figures came as a baby in a ship, and we don't know where he came from, but there are sheaves of corn in the boat with him, so he's a kind of a culture hero. And then when he dies, or in some versions he's not even dead yet, um, he's put on a ship again, and the ship Mm -hmm. is pushed into the west, and there's a mysterious line about the beings who had sent him there receiving him again. And Tolkien, in a note, connects those mysterious beings explicitly with the Valar. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to, he's trying to appropriate every strand of British literature and northern mythology and kind of steal it and appropriate it into his own mythology. Beowulf, that's mine. King Arthur, that's mine. <laughs> and weave it in. Um, so we've got to go to Arendelle now, don't we?
1: Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Um, there was a projected tale of Arendelle that he never finished, that, uh, has a lot of different pieces left in the notes that you can see in the book of lost tales one and two and he seems to have one of these imrama voyages in mind where he goes to different islands and he uh... his wife at that time is turned into a seamew which is a seagull and he's on an island with a lot of other birds and she comes and brings him a message so she's a messenger bird or a supernatural guide and he ends up sailing off to the Land of Promise uh, as well, and having different adventures on several of these kinds of islands. Unfortunately, he didn't finish that story. We can only imagine what it would have been like in in the end, but that is very much tied to this uh, as well.
0: Yeah, so he has these Arendelle figures or these Roverendum figures over and over and over. Something about the draw to these islands in the West. So what do you think that is? Why Why is there this theme throughout British literature and Tolkien's work about an island in the west.
1: And even broader than British literature, they have this in the Greek literature, the, uh, the Hesperides uh, is the land with golden apples, that's islands in the west, and um, Sinbad, the sailor uh, from the Persian stories, has these same types of motifs. Um, including a giant whale that ferries people around. Uh, I don't know if it's this desire for a paradise on earth or a middle ground between heaven and hell, Mm. where if you're not totally bad and not good enough to get into heaven, kind of an intermediate purgatory or purgatorial place that you can get. uh, But this does seem to be an image that Haunts Tolkien, his yeah. entire his entire life.
0: Yeah, this idea does.
1: that there's something within reach of human beings. There's something within reach of mortals mm. that is
0: a little better than
1: this life, even if you're not good enough to get into heaven yet.
0: Um, and is it connected to his Atlantis haunting as well? Absolutely, because yeah, that's another magical land in the West that had very particular wisdom. Um, but that one, of course, is, is drowned and is lost. But there's mm-hmm. still a sense that its wisdom is a, a superhuman wisdom. It's a spiritual insight um, that we need and that we're drawn to all the time. Yeah. Uh,
1: yes, and all of these are woven. There there are... Um, High Brazil is uh, a Welsh myth yep. that he knew and, and used. Um, it seems to be in many cultures in Europe, and the Middle East, at least, that um, we have these magical lands over the ocean. And Tolkien believed that there might be true myth behind all these fragmented myths that you get in the different um, uh, legends of of different cultures. He was trying to
0: kind of track that down. I mean, historically speaking, too, before... Before Europeans traveled to the United States to America to the Americas, then there was this sort of endless ocean that stretches off over the horizon in the west, and we don't know uh, what's beyond it and it's it's easy to populate that with myths and legends as well and um, so not only Tolkien but the other inklings were absolutely fascinated by this by these Western islands as well. So is the voyage of the Don Treader and Imram then? It, it actually is.
1: I'm going to uh, bring back. Let's see. Let's see if we can get back to that. Uh... Sorry yeah, about structure. that. There we go. So there's the structure, and if we superimpose the Voyage of the Don Treader on that, which was written in the 1950s, so that's 25 years after Tolkien wrote this. But he and C.S. Lewis were friends and talked every week and studied these these Imrama. Um, the the Voyage of the Don Treader is an imram on a couple different levels. One is Prince Caspian is exiling himself from Narnia to go off in search of these seven lords that his uncle had exiled, and he's trying to um, make good on his uncle's sin. So Caspian didn't commit any crime, but he's trying to make good on his uncle's crime by finding these seven lords. And then Eustace Scrub is a thoroughly nasty little boy, and that's his crime. He listens in on people and and is a bully, and he gets pulled through the painting through a storm, and Caspian has to experience a storm at sea, and then they're both pulled into kind of this other world within the Narnian other world with magical islands. They have lots of companions on the ship. They voyage to um, many different islands that don't seem to have a connection with each other, and that's been a criticism of the Dawn Treader, is that it doesn't seem that these islands Mm. make an overall narrative. and. That's the point of the Imrahma, is that each one is an own, its own little mini lesson. And you'll notice on each island, somebody learns something. Lucy learns on the magician's island um, not to be so caught up in looking like Susan, being as beautiful as Susan, and not to listen in on her friends. And there are other little lessons that people learn on the different islands. They get supernatural guides, including magicians, mm-hmm. birds on Ramandu's island, yeah. um, uh. Eustace is turned into a dragon, and there's definitely dragons all over the Irish literature and the, the Imrama literature, the other world Voyage literature. And then Eustace learns how to be a better boy. Caspian does his best to find all seven lords or what happened to them. And then he returns to um, Narnia, and Lucy and Edmund and Eustace return to their land. So there's that whole voyage. It actually fits very well.
0: Right. And yet, you said previously that the Imram is specifically not a quest, and so here Lewis combines the two genres, right? Maybe that's, maybe he's trying to give the episodic nature a bit, a bit more of a through theme, that, alright, if we have a quest for Ripacheap for the end of the world, and for Caspian mm-hmm. to revenge the seven lords, then that gives kind of a forward direction to the stories as well. Right,
1: right. There has yeah. to be a reason that they're out on the ocean
0: uh, for Lewis. Yeah, exactly. But if you
1: look at Brendan's voyage and Reepicheep's, they're very similar. Brendan wanted to find the land of promise of the saints, and Reepicheep wanted to find Aslan's country, Uh, and they both have that in common. Brendan was told to go back to Ireland, and Reepicheep was not, so there's a difference
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the return because there's some funny things that happen in a couple of the versions. In some of the versions, the uh, they stay away for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and they get back to Ireland. And the first guy who steps out of the boat and sets foot on land, the centuries catch up with him, and he turns to dust. <laughs> yeah. So the rest of them learn their lesson, and they have to stay on the boat forever and sail around the world forever. Another Arendelle connection. Whereas some of them are told. To go home and tell the message, right? When you go
1: to Fairy, uh, as everybody who reads uh, the Narnian tales and uh, has journeyed with the Fellowship into Lothlorien knows, time passes at a different rate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, in the so mundane world, oh. Yeah, Kate sent in a couple of comments about time, so I, that's, I'll stick them in now. She says that there's a time-bending nature to visiting an other world that shows up in Irish legend. So perhaps we might imagine that when Rover Random began his voyage, he left his current time stream as well. Oh, I like that. So that might explain sort of the different geography and yet the modern setting. So that's a possibility. So I'm That sorry is definitely a possibility. I no, I think that's fantastic. That's really a, a, a great observation, Kate. Yeah. Um, so there are elements of time. There are questions about the return and the destination and the quest. Uh, some other questions about the islands, too. So the moon got to count. Uh, so how about Venus? Does Paralandra count? Ooh. Um, it probably does. I
1: think it fits the criteria that it's an insular environment if you're on venus that's a self-contained world it's separate from the mundane world there are the rules seem to be different um, there are dragons and and uh... magical fruit and other things islands that move around on the face of venus i would think that taken as a whole the space trilogy could be considered another world voyage mm.
0: Okay, which then would explain a bit more why that hideous strength is so much on Earth. Mm-hmm. Because it's the return book, when it's the, the wisdom that he's learned from the supernatural guides, when he has to apply it now in his, in his home country. Yes. Yes, he's traveled, like a- Yeah, he's traveled to these islands, Mars and Venus, and the various islands and the fixed land on Venus, and then he comes home again. Yeah, I mean, there are explicit references. When Ransom meets the dragon, the heraldic dragon, he and the gold sees the golden apples. He says he recognized the island of the Hesperides immediately. Mm-hmm. So just in case we missed it, <laughs> he tells us this is Hesperides. And then, of course, it turns out that Avalon, King Arthur's Avalon, is on Venus. It's on Venus in Lewis's. So from one point of view, maybe from Tolkien's point of view, that's a terrible mixing up of mythologies. Lewis, it's an island in the west. It's not a valley on Venus, but he's clearly doing that on purpose. Mm -hmm. He's clearly making this uh, a cosmic voyage as well. Yeah, I think that is a paper just screaming to be written. Well, it actually has been by Charles Hutter, and it's in my forthcoming King Arthur book, so... Fantastic. <laughs> yes, oh, that's I, have great. That, I have that up in front of me while we're talking so I can reference that. Um, and Charles Hutter in this paper also discusses Tolkien's poem, *Imram*, which was published in 1955. And I haven't seen the entire poem and I don't know if it's like a translation adaptation of The Voyage of Brendan or if it's a totally new composition.
1: It's a totally new composition. It is in, I believe, Histories of Middle-Earth, Volume so, 5. Yeah, Sauron Defeated. Or Sauron Defeated. Okay, Sauron Defeated. Yeah. And there are several of the versions in there. Of course, Tolkien always wrote multiple versions of things, and uh, Christopher has three of those, I believe, available okay. uh, in Histories of Middle-Earth. And it's a new composition, but it is definitely based on the Brendan legend. But Tolkien superimposes on top of that, his important symbolism, so the the tree and the star and the mountain are all important symbols to Tolkien and that's what he emphasizes in that poem. Mm
0: -hmm. And he explicitly says that the island is the island of elvenkind. Mm -hmm. So there again we have him making his appropriation quite obvious. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have one more thematic question in my mind at the moment but let's see what other questions people are asking um... Oh, Joe wanted to know, were Imrama a familiar story structure for Tolkien's audience? Would they have recognized *Roverandom* as an Imram?
1: Well, the only three audience of *Roverandom* intentional were the three Tolkien boys, so yes. Okay. They would have. He would have read them those stories. He had dozens of uh, books of Celtic, Irish, and Welsh mythology in his personal collection, and he would have read some of those stories to the boys and, and told them that as part of both their bedtime stories and their Catholic uh, instructions. So, yeah, um, yeah, that because he put it in a drawer in 1937, and it didn't come out again until 1997. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the only three audience that Tolkien intended.
0: Right. And then as far as the Imramic, probably not a word, Imramic elements like <laughs> in his other works, uh, well, have they really been noted? Well, not so much. I mean, Demetra has done some work on, mm-hmm. uh, Kel- on Celtic lore in Tolkien, and you've done this, and Charles Hutter has done this one on Dr. Published-
1: Flieger has done some work in two of her books, Question of Time and Interrupted Music. There are chapters. Good on the Otherworld Voyage, and Charles Hutter, definitely. Um, uh, the subtitle is Inklings of Home. What is the, what is the main yeah. title? It's this from myth one- lore.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what he rewrote for my book. Yeah. Uh, the, Wonderful. article. Houses of Healing. I don't know if that's the title now, or if that was his original title. That's the title now. now. The original yeah, title. Is now. Now. It's, it's at
1: the end of the, the slideshow. So we'll yeah. make the slides available for people, and you can see what some of the major references were. There's little tidbits here and there, but I found that I had to do a lot of digging uh, to weave them all together.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jen wants to know if we know what Celtic collections Tolkien had. I guess you mean what, what books he owned himself?
1: Um, some of them were donated to... To Oxford University, and Dimitroffimi has been in that collection. And if I go further with this research, then I'm going to go over to Oxford, and I'll get you a list. Uh, they're not easily identifiable in the online Oxford catalog. Somebody needs to go over there and identify them. But we do know that he had um, both pagan and Christian legends and mythology, as well as uh, in, oh, in the original languages, as well as translations. As Tolkien would have, and so he had things on the uh, Tuatha De Danann. He had things on uh, Brendan, certainly, and probably a copy of Melduin. He mentions Brendan, Bran, and Melduin repeatedly in the um, in his writings from 1930 and earlier. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. All right. So here's. Kind of a big question that's sort of thematic. You started by pointing out how a lot of these Imrama are specifically Christian, but we also mentioned that um, one of the items that is usually used to kind of invite or seduce the person on the journey is the golden bough. So is that Fraser's golden bow? Um, and if so, what is it? Is this is this universal mythology that it? it just has a variety of meanings for all kinds of people or is it specifically Christian in an exclusive way? I mean, I guess just talk a bit more about the spiritual nature of these, if you would. Sure.
1: I I don't know if it's Fraser's golden bough. Certainly um, all cultures that have trees and they are remarkable organisms um, have some sort of mythology about trees. When uh, a fairy queen Comes to a mortal and presents a golden or a silver bow, or a golden apple. Um, those are usually the pagan stories, and not the Christian stories. Um, the Christian stories don't. Boy, the four that we have, I don't think that there is a golden or a silver bow in those. I think though those are Bran and Boishin. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And a few of the other pagan. Um, Uh, pagan stories. Um, But the spirituality behind it has just a lot to do with um, sin and redemption and how you you worship. And so on these monastic islands oftentimes the heroes or the protagonists are shown the proper way to worship. Mm. And they meet a lot of holy Uh, wise men. These are men typically described as having beards so long they might tread on them. Um, They stop counting how old they are, you know, 80 or 100. They never seem to get any older than that. Um, But these are old hermits that the protagonists visit and they learn from the old hermits um, how to be worshipful and and live correctly. Just a lot of little mini lessons about being humble, about um, being forgiving, about being forgiven,
0: yeah. and uh, worshiping frequently. For mm-hmm. well, months. Yeah. Well, Wesley had asked that question a little while back, and um, he said, "What are some of the lessons that Rover learns? Is Tolkien explicitly trying to teach something about lost things or about innocence and experience?"
1: Initially, I think Tolkien just wanted to comfort Michael when he lost his toy dog and then when he goes back and adds different things to the story as he builds it out, we get more into the lessons that might be more applicable on a, a general basis to all the Tolkien children, which is not to be so rash, so Rover's playing with his ball in the front yard and a. a guy with a white beard comes by and picks it up and just looks at it. And immediately Rover bites him. Give me back my ball. And he bites him. And instead of having a conversation or or entering into a negotiation or or having any sort of adult dialogue, um, Rover is very rash. On his journeys, he goes into a dragon cave and wakes up a sleeping dragon. He bites the tail of a giant sea serpent and wakes the giant sea serpent. He just is a rambunctious little puppy and i imagine the three tolkien boys were rambunctious little puppies too (laughs) uh... and these just feels incredibly bad for this and he sees what his actions can actually do to other people's lives and that's the point when he kinda grows up and apologizes Mm -hmm. and they reconcile Mm -hmm.
0: Mm And Kate is saying another lesson that they might learn is, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. Rover wants to run away from
1: home until he's actually away from home, and then he wants to go back.
0: So is it a bit of a coming-of-age story as well? Yes. For Rover?
1: Definitely. And I think if you look at Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you'll see the same thing with Eustace. He was nasty, selfish, a bully, um, and many other things besides. And on his voyage... He learns how to be selfless, he learns how to think of, of others and how his actions impact others, and he just learns how to be, you know, a nicer sort of boy when he gets back. And at school, every, all the kids yeah. at Eustace's school notice that he's quite a different boy yeah. than he was before, and Rover goes through the same sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even Caspian has to learn one of those lessons as well at the end when he wants to continue sailing mm-hmm. to Aslan's country it has a temper tantrum over that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they send he, it Narnia, needs Narnia needs him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Each one of the Narnia Chronicles is about uh, restored kingship, so there's something about restoring people to their their rightful duties and their rightful places in these stories as well. When Oshin leaves, it's terrible because he's needed as a warrior, and mm-hmm. the, the Fianna, the warriors, it's kind of like the Round Table, the Knights of the Roundtable group that he leaves are devastated that he leaves, um, and when he comes back again, all of his companions are dead, and the world is totally changed.
1: Right. Right, um, and doesn't he wake up? He wakes up at some point with his beautiful fairy lover and says, ah, I think I have to go back to Ireland now. They need me.
0: Yeah, uh, and then... Right, and she tries to persuade him to stay, everyone tries to persuade him. and he has there's a ban, too, he has to stay on his horse, as long as he doesn't touch Irish soil right. he'll be able to come back, but he falls right. off the horse and touches the soil, yeah. Yes. Um, so Wesley asked a follow-up question, how does that didactic element in Roverandom compare with what Tolkien is doing didactically in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings? <sighs> It's a little
1: more obvious in Roverandom, and of course this was his first, that we know of, completed work for children. So he might have had a more subtle touch than as he uh, goes on and writes The Hobbit and then uh, certainly The Lord of the Rings. I think that um, certainly the common themes are that there's no place like home but that you can't go home again. Um, it's certainly a happier situation for Rover and Bilbo than it is for Frodo. Um, I think there's definitely some comparisons and some contrasts to be to be made, but yeah. I think Rover Random is an early version of what he develops later in The Hobbit.
0: Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you so much, Chris. That's a really, really important topic, and you've opened up so many other avenues for exploration. I hope everyone who's listening is inspired. There's paper topics in here and (laughs) more reading and connections to be drawn. Uh, Any other questions? Maybe you want to bring up your sources slides, Chris, if there's any last questions. Um,
1: So there are some. sources slides that I've got. Here's uh, a slide, however, Mythgard and Signum students or or Signum students that um, can access the Signum University Library you can access Tolkien Studies and I was very fortunate actually to have this published in the latest version of Tolkien Studies which is volume 12. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. And uh, so you guys can all download and read that. Uh, from Project MUSE. Perfect. And then um, other sources. uh, Here are some of the major works that have uh, been written from very early actually, noticing that even though Tolkien talks back about Irish language and uh, Celtic mythology sometimes, he actually used quite a bit of it and that was noticed early on in, in bits and pieces. The major um, works, however, are Merlin uh, Flieger, Demetra Fimi, Tom Shippey, Charles Hutter. Mm-hmm. Deep Lies sure. the Sea Longing. That is, there it is. That's the original title. Deep Lies of the course. Sea Longing, Inklings of Home.
0: The idea, right. And then the new one is The Houses of Healing, The Idea of Avalon, and Inklings fiction and poetry. Ooh, I can't wait to read that. Yes, because we haven't even mentioned Charles Williams yet and his western sea and his western island of Saras, the land of the Except Trinity. Life which is another explicit Christian rewriting of all this, so that the the Grail comes into all of this as well. Okay, they're not quest stories, but they get picked up in the Grail quest mm-hmm. stories um, also. So the stories go ever on and on. All right. Well, on that note, congratulations on your publication, Chris, and um, your many conference presentations, and we wish you well with your future work. So come back and talk to us later when you have some other projects in hand that that thank you'd like to and and bounce
1: thank you off you of an me. audience.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Be sure to go to the website and check out the other events through the fundraiser. We'll be having a couple more of these thesis chats and faculty chats, interviews and discussions uh, in the future. So I hope to see you all there. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks.